When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Mohamed Morsi rose to power in Egypt in 2012, after the Arab Spring. He was an unlikely and ungainly leader who was deposed in a coup just a year later. Yesterday, still enduring trials on trumped-up charges, he died in court. His passing is emblematic of just how far the country is from its dreamed-of democracy. And the group stages of the Women's World Cup have almost finished. It's drawing much more attention than past tournaments. The way sponsorship is divvied up among the English lionesses has changed, and that is bringing long-overdue money into the sport, if not into the players' pockets. But first... a movement like we've never seen in the history of our country. President Donald Trump will officially announce today that he's running for a second term in office. And we will make America great again. Thank you. Mr. Trump kicks off his campaign with a historically low approval rating, but he retains a great deal of support, not least from within his own party. Vice President Mike Pence and the First Lady Melania Trump will join him at his campaign launch in Orlando, Florida. When Mr. Trump rallied in the same city during the 2016 campaign, he still had ground to make up on Hillary Clinton. I love you. I love you. It's a movement, folks. It's a movement. His taking of Florida was crucial to his eventual victory. It's not about me. It's about you, believe me. This is a movement. In the 2020 race, it'll again be the biggest prize among the battleground states. I think the rally today in Orlando will be a throwback to 2016. The kind of big crowds we saw coming out for Donald Trump, the protesters protesting against him. And I think for people who cover politics, there'll be a feeling of, I can't believe this has come around again so quickly. John Prido is our United States editor. And in Trump's case, of course, you know, he's never really stopped campaigning, Jason. He's been unusual as a president in that from really the beginning of taking office, he's been going around to states that he won and holding campaign-like rallies. So in a sense, it'll be a continuation of things he's been doing already for the last little bit. But, you know, this is the official start of election 2020. And how important is Florida to Mr. Trump this time around? It's kind of, it's always a, a swing state, a bellwether state, a hotly tipped state. What do you reckon? Florida is really important. And I say this as somebody who's read a lot of articles 
as a political reporter and written a few myself that have said, you know, X is the key state. And of course, there are a lot of states that are the key state in America in uh, presidential elections. There are always some swing states. Florida is very important, not just because it's a big state, so lots of electoral college votes, but because it is you know, the, the big swing state. And Donald Trump did really well there in 2016. He beat Hillary Clinton, not by a huge margin, but comfortably, and was a bit of a surprise at the time. I remember watching it on the night. And the point where Florida went was the point when people started to take very seriously the fact that this man was going to be the next president of the U.S. I don't know if they've announced Illinois yet, but we're leading by a lot. So I think they're going to announce it. Florida was so amazing. Needs to hang on to Florida and um, I think, you know, he is a Florida man to, to some extent. I think he goes down pretty well there with enough voters. Um, so it's, it's really important for him. It's no accident that he's chosen Orlando as a place to kick off. And, and so what do you make of his chances this time around? Do you think that Florida will be an easy win this time? The state-by-state state polling that I've seen suggests that he's doing pretty well in Florida, Jason, at the moment. I, I like his chances there at the moment. It's obviously way too early to make that kind of prediction with any certainty. You can say overall that the betting markets have the 2020 presidential election as a coin toss, um, you know, 50-50. Those odds will shift a bit when we know who the Democratic nominee will be. But Florida will be will be close. Well, I mean, thinking more broadly and, and without prejudice to uh, polls that are happening now, this early in, in the race, the prevailing wisdom is that if the economy is good, then an incumbent president stays put. I, I mean, where do you fall on that? That's right. I mean, if you look at the historical pattern in America, it's really, really clear. Strong economy, incumbent president gets reelected. That said, um, people are a little split on whether that is because when the economy is strong, there tends to be high approval of the president, of the sitting president. Um, and what's very strange about Donald Trump and has you know, created this kind of interesting experiment for political scientists at the moment is that the state of the economy, which is good, and presidential approval rating, um, which is low, have come apart in a way that we haven't seen in American politics before since people have started, you know, since people started doing this kind of polling. And so we're not quite sure whether the thing that really matters is the strength of the economy, in which case you'd say, okay, Donald Trump's going to get reelected. And presidential approval rating, which is low, you know, Donald Trump's approval rating bumbles around 40%. That is not very good. So we'll get to see in 2020 which of these two things is the metric that really matters. So that challenges pollsters' notions of, of how to predict what's happening. I mean, in, in what other ways do you think uh, the, the sort of the landscape has changed since 2016, uh, the way Mr. Trump sort of has, has changed the rule book? Well, I think you could split that into how has he changed American politics and then how has he changed the country? And that, those are two slightly different things. So if you take American politics, he's clearly changed the way Americans talk about politics, feel about politics, how politics is done in America. 65% of Americans say that it's become more acceptable to express racially insensitive views since Donald Trump became president. You know, that's, that's, that's pretty clear. Um, and then you have some interesting moves in the opposite direction. So if you look at support for immigration, Jason, for, for example, in America, actually, Americans are more enthusiastic about immigration, a lot more enthusiastic than they were before Donald Trump was elected. They're a lot more enthusiastic about free trade than they were before he was elected. They're more enthusiastic about um, higher taxes. So there's a strange way in which the electorate has had a kind of allergic reaction to Donald Trump. And he's changed Americans' kind of ideas about what they want, but not in the direction that he, he might wish. In fact, in the opposite direction. 
So it seems as if he's made uh, his job of getting reelected that much harder, and yet, even still, it's, it's sort of a toss-up. Why? Well, so part of that is that the public always has a bit of an allergic reaction to the president. <laughs> so you saw some similar things. You know, the public became a bit more left-wing when George W. Bush was elected president and a bit more right-wing after Barack Obama was elected president. So as part of this is just the, the sort of people, political scientists talk about this as being thermostatic. You know, so when the political weather gets too hot, they turn the thermostat down and, and vice versa. So a little bit is something that always happens. But then a bit of it is that Trump is a very unpopular president, you know, his approval ratings are really low. And so anything that's associated with him automatically um, attracts the kind of, you know, disgust, I don't think is too strong a word, of quite a large share of Americans. So, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. On, and then you have all the ways in which he, you know, he's actually changed the country from cutting taxes, different judges on the Supreme Court. Those are things that perhaps you know, any Republican president might have done. And then there are some kind of Trump-specific things um, around the political culture we've already talked about, but then also you know, trade, for example. He's taken a very, very different approach. So you know, the country's going to look quite different in 2020 to how it looked in 2016. John, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks, Jason. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA, copyright 2024. In Egypt, the deposed president, Mohamed Morsi, has died. He had been in jail for six years after he lost power in a military coup. Rights groups say he was badly treated in prison and denied medical care. Mohamed Morsi came to power in 2012 when Egypt held its first free and fair presidential election. These were in the heady days after, uh, a year and a half after, the Arab Spring uprising that toppled Hosni Mubarak, Egypt's dictator, for 30 years. Roger McShane is The Economist's Middle East editor. So this was a, a time of immense excitement for the Egyptian people. I mean, they were literally electing their leader for the first time in history. For Egyptians who had been excluded from the political process their whole lives, the election of Mr. Morsi was unforgettable. It was a very special moment, you know. I felt that for the first time, with my own will, I chose, I selected the president who I wanted to select. Amr Darag was briefly a minister under Mr. Morsi. In the election, voters had to choose between Mr. Morsi, a former academic and Islamist politician, and a man who had been a prime minister under the old regime. Some people didn't. Maybe, maybe are not fans of the Brotherhood, but they, of course, they they did not want to vote for a symbol of the of the Mubarak era. So they selected uh, Dr. Morsi to be a, a representative of the revolutionary change that took place. So Morsi was a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was the preeminent Islamist organization in Egypt. 
And the Brotherhood had a wide following at the time. It had been banned under Mubarak, but it was it was sort of allowed to do its thing, to run clinics, to sort of organize in the community. And so when Mubarak was toppled, it was really the one force in Egypt that was prepared for an election. So it had a leg up on all the other candidates. And at the time, sort of more liberal types, they had split their vote during the first round of the presidential election. So Morsi ended up facing off against a Mubarak era figure. And so in the end, he had the support not only of the Islamists, but really of the more liberal Egyptians who sort of bit their tongue and thought Morsi represented a cleaner break with the past. Roger, how had he gotten into politics? What was his background? So uh, Morsi had been a member of parliament under Mubarak when some of the Muslim brothers were allowed to run as independents. But he was an engineer by trade. He was never really seen as much of an upper-and-comer in the Brotherhood. I mean, he was sort of an uninspiring figure. No one would have predicted this man would have become president. And so once he got into the presidency, did he begin to inspire? No, no, not really. He governed in a really clumsy manner, didn't really build a broad base of support. He faced a lot of obstacles, it should be said. The army was against him from the beginning. The intelligence services tried to undermine him a lot of the police wouldn't even take to the street. But Morsi's response to this was to claim that he was above the law and could make decisions without the courts, which were working against him. And this really turned people against him. This was resistance to, to him or resistance to change? This was both, really. I, I would say more resistance to change, certainly amongst the army and the intelligence services who were supported by Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. This was resistance to change and resistance to democracy. But there were also a large number of Egyptians who thought that the Brotherhood was going to come in, take away rights, turn Egypt into a theocracy. I mean, when I was there, I talked to young people who thought their country was being taken away from them. So how long did he manage to to cling on in these uh, these, um, unhappy circumstances? Well, he clung on to mid-2013, and, and there were protests all along the way, but they really became intense, and people came out in large numbers in 2013, and that's when his rule really started to falter. And, you know, it was a combination of popular outrage against his rule, again, entrenched interests that wanted to see him go, and then a lot of bad decisions on the part of Morsi and a, a really a failure to give any ground, and ultimately... He was pushed out by his then defense minister, Abdul Fattah al-Sisi, uh, who would later become president. And, and so that kind of resolved matters? He, everyone was happy to see him go? I would say most people were happy to see him go. Certainly not everyone was happy to see him go. And there were large protests after he did go, large sit-ins by his Islamist supporters. And these were allowed to go on for a very short period of time before the army came in and crushed the protests, killing hundreds of people. I think that massacre, which is thought to be the largest in Egyptian history, really lingers in the memory of Islamists, not just in Egypt, but across the Arab world. And at the time, there was little, very little made of it by Egyptians. And I think looking back on that, it was, a, it was a bit of a moment of shame for the country. I mean, obviously, it was a moment of shame. It was a massacre. But I think on the part of the Egyptian population, I think you look back on it now, especially as sort of Abdul Fattah al-Sisi has increased his grip on the country and really become a new authoritarian, 
there, there's a bit more shame in the fact that no one spoke out against it or very few people. And what about Mr. Morsi? What, what happened to him after the coup? Morsi was locked up and faced a number of trials for everything from espionage uh, to killing protesters to stealing livestock. I was in Cairo at the time. It was really tough to keep track of all the trials uh, that Morsi faced. And he was constantly handed down sentences um, ranging from life in prison to death sentences. He seemed to be constantly appearing in court. And at the same time, he was suffering from diabetes and, and reportedly from liver disease. And you would constantly hear from his supporters and from human rights groups that he wasn't receiving the proper treatment in prison. It, it's hard not to see kind of something of a metaphor here uh, in terms of a push towards democracy that seems to have been overturned with, you know, with Mr. Morsi's death. D does this moment tell you anything about where the country is headed, where President Sisi is taking it? You know, I, I think the sad thing is this moment doesn't really resonate in, in part because the Brotherhood have been completely crushed by this government. Sisi's authoritarian regime is entrenched. Earlier this year, a constitutional amendment was passed by the rubber stamp parliament, which will allow Sisi to rule until 2030. I, I just think we're well past the moment where Egyptians' dream of democracy uh, are, are over. Roger, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Tomorrow, England's women's football team will play Japan in their last game of the group stages of the World Cup. They're expected to win. What's remarkable for the English side is not how well they're doing on the pitch. They came third in the last World Cup, but the amount of enthusiasm behind them this time around. We're definitely in a much better place than we were four years ago during the time of the last World Cup. A lot has changed. In fact, I think it's probably been the fastest growing sport ever in history, really. Maggie Schildhag has been following the World Cup for The Economist, and she's also the captain of The Economist's women's football team. She says the sport's gender pay gap remains unconscionable all over the world. In fact, while America's team has been breezing through the group stages, it's been fighting a lawsuit against the sport's governing body for institutionalized gender discrimination on wages. But there are signs that in England anyway, the sport is getting the attention and the investment that it's needed for decades. Since 2014, audience figures have increased fivefold. A lot of people who would never have thought to watch it before are actually being exposed to it because it's the first time in many countries it's actually being given prime TV slots. Previously, if you ever wanted to watch a women's football game, you'd have to know exactly when it was on and seek it out and know exactly where to stream it. Whereas now it's just accessible to everyone and it's really drawing in a lot more people than ever before. This culminated in over 6 million viewers tuning in for England's first match which made it the most watched women's football match of all time. Visa recently announced that they're investing the same amount in the Women's World Cup now as they do in men's, and that's never happened before. So progress is happening. It's happening fast, but there's still a long way to go. And so what has, has brought on all of this, this growth? What's changed since the last World Cup? I think one of the biggest factors so far is that at the end of 2017, the sponsorship rights to women's games as well as competitions were unbundled. Previously, they were sold as a package alongside the men's game, which meant that sponsors had to be the same and the women's sport didn't have their own sponsors. So now what's happened after that is that it's opened up the market to particular companies that have a particular interest in the women's game who are now 
not obliged to also invest in the men's game. So this has brought in a whole host of new companies that were never involved in the area at all, which obviously has meant a load of new investment into the sport. Before, sponsors would basically throw a small amount of their their sponsorship budget at the women's games. Yeah, exactly. We're already starting to see the fruits of that because loads of companies that are interested in female audiences have now invested in the sport. Avon recently did a deal whereby they became the main sponsors for Liverpool Ladies Football Club. That's never been seen before, so that was a real step in the right direction. It also seems to have exposed almost a gap in the market. If we're talking about the men's sport, the market is so saturated that there's thousands of different companies targeting the same audience, and they've been doing so for so long because there's been so much money in it. But actually, the women's sport, because it's been growing so much over the past few years, it's opened up a gap for companies who want to get in there and actually expose themselves to that high growth. So it's allowed a lot of new companies to come in as well. So this this unbundling of the sponsorship then has clearly opened the floodgates for a lot of investment in the sport. Has that, is that going to be all of the investment that you think women's football needs? I mean, I think we're still at the start. We're seeing some good progress. So 60% of top women's football teams now have a front of shirt sponsor that's different to the men's side. And I think it's really good for the identity of the sport to have their own sponsors and to feel like a sport for themselves. I do still think we're a long way off from women's football being taken kind of on its own merits rather than constantly being compared to the men's game. So I do think this is a good start because previously, if your sponsorship's packaged, then the women playing are going to feel like a kind of add-on as well. It's important in terms of showcasing the fact that the women's game is standalone in its own right. Maggie, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this, the 100th episode of The Intelligence. About time I told you about all the talented people who make the show. Cheryl Brumley and Marguerite Howell are the editors. Our senior producers are Alice Fordham and Chris Impey. Hannah Coombs and William Warren are our producers. Stevie Hertz, our assistant producer. And Laura Clark, our audience producer. Daniel Lloyd Evans is our sound engineer and reverb specialist. See you back here tomorrow as we start another 100. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.